Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Mark, and welcome tonight. I'm so glad to see you. I hope that you uh, were here last week and you got the notes from Revelation chapter 8. But last week we started out with Revelation 8 and Revelation 9, I told you, would be a, it's just all part of one big narrative and story. So I want to pick up tonight with Revelation chapter 9, but I'd like you to just understand that what you're seeing here is mercy and wrath being revealed at the same time. You're seeing grace and judgment being revealed at the same time. I uh, kind of walked back through my memory today as a child when I would hear messages about the Great Tribulation, and then when I was studying in school, it always just frightened me. And, and these are some terrifying, frightening images, especially that we'll look at tonight. But the mercy of God, the more I've studied Revelation over all these years, the mercy of God and God's redemptive purposes are being seen. There is wrath and there is judgment, but what you're going to see tonight is evil for what evil really is, and the grace and the goodness and the love of God for what that really is as well. There are going to be two trumpets sounding tonight. I have shared with you that um, some things that I thought maybe you needed to keep in mind, and as we read this chapter, remember there's prophetic revelation, what the Bible tells us is going to happen. We can bank on that. There's prophetic interpretation. We talked about that last week. What different people think and how they interpret the book of Revelation. I have some very good friends that are part of other denominations. They view Revelation very differently. We talked about that in the very beginning of the series. And then there's prophetic speculation. We talked about that and that there's nothing wrong with prophetic speculation, just as long as you know that it's speculation. We talked about last week that uh, the books that were written, the Left Behind series, and I was surprised at how many had read those. Let me see hands again. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? It was, a, oh, it was for a long time a New York Times bestseller, and uh, I forget, I didn't get through with all of them. I finally had to read something else for a while, but were there like 12 of those books or there was a lot of them, she's saying. You're exactly right. There were a lot of those books uh, that were written, and they just kept selling and kept selling because people are highly and deeply interested in these things. But that is what we would call fiction. It's speculation. It's why that when you buy the Left Behind series, you don't find it in the theology section. You don't find it in the uh, uh, nonfiction section. You don't find it in the commentary section. You find it in the fiction section because that's exactly what it is. It's speculation, but there's nothing wrong with that. And tonight as we go through this passage... There is one significant portion that people have speculated on a lot, and some people have tried to take that speculation and make it interpretation. I want to undo that tonight and separate that because it's so important that we never hitch our wagons to speculation. It's good to speculate. It's good to imagine. But you don't want to substitute speculation for interpretation, and you don't want to substitute interpretation for the plain revealed Word of God, which I said last week we would call prophetic revelation. So I'm going to ask if you would tonight, stand with me as we continue to read John's vision, what he's seeing in his vision. That's important. That word vision, again, is important. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. And that word fallen is a perfect participle. So I know that 
I'm not trying to impress you, but there's just something you need to know about that word. As a result of fallen, it has a continuous action. It's not a one-time event. It's something that has a continuous, irreversible action. And that's why I bring that out to you, because last week we looked at the fall of a star in chapter 8. We're looking at the fall of another star in chapter 9, but a much different kind of star. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And when he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. And then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We looked at that last week. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. And in those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like a woman's hair and teeth like teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle and they had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but two more terrors are coming. And then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. And then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on earth. Now, remember, we looked at a significant number dying in last, last chapter. Well, I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. And the riders wore armies, armor that was like fiery red and dark blue and yellow. And their horses had heads like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. One-third of all the people were killed by these plagues and by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. And their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. And they continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or of their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's kind of a shocking close to that chapter, isn't it? You would think with what was happening, you would run to the altar. Do you remember that movie? If you're my age or my generation, there was a movie out called The Thief in the Night. Anybody remember that movie? A review was written of that movie and said, show it to your youth group. It will literally scare the hell out of them. And I can remember that movie being shown in the 70s and young people flocking to the altars. It scared us. But here in this time of the great tribulation, it's going to be similar to what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. This is a call for the church to pray. So I want you to join me tonight together in prayer. Lord, I thank you again for this book. And I know after reading this chapter, 
we just kind of want to go home and just sit in stunned silence, and that would be a good thing to do. Part of me wants to go home and take a shower after reading the close of this chapter because I just cannot imagine, Lord, the hardness of hearts. But then there's another part of me that rises up and says, Lord, this is a part of a book that tells us of how you are triumphing over the powers of hell and restoring your kingdom to this earth and giving to your church all that has been promised to us. And this is just one more part of the redemptive mercy of God that is taking place. So I ask you this evening, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. First of all, I want to say just thank you so much for the way you showed up for the funeral of Bonnie Kish this week. I just was so proud of our congregation, for those of you that were there. And it was probably one of the saddest funerals I preached because it was so sudden, but it was such a joyful funeral to preach because of the story of Bonnie's life and her coming to know Christ and also the story of Bonnie's family, their influence, their love for Jesus that led Dave Kish to know the Lord as his Savior. So never underestimate. Dave has got a wonderful story that I hope to get him to share with you someday. Dave's got a powerful and a wonderful story. If you're part of that small group, you know that story, but it all came about by seeing the life of Christ manifested through Bonnie's family. Don't ever underestimate the power of your family's witness, and may God give us all that kind of witness. Can you say amen to that? All right. Well, let's look at this tonight. I want to just take you just for a few moments and look back again at verse 1 and 2. The fifth angel trumpeted. And I'm reading from the message here because I just think it gives you a a little more, a picture that's a little clearer for us to see. And I saw a star plummet from heaven to earth, and the star was handed a key to the well of the abyss. He unlocked the well of the abyss, and smoke poured out of the well, billows and billows of smoke, sun and air, and blackout from smoke pouring out of the well." What you're seeing here is not a physical star, but you're seeing a star that's being given personal qualities. We looked at last week, we can't be sure what the star was that we looked at earlier. It might be a meteorite, you know, it might not be. But here, this star has a little bit of a different characteristic. It is a personal star. It's also presented in terms of of that perfect iris tense that I was talking about. The fact that this star something had happened in the star's life, and it is released from a place called the abyss. The abyss in the scripture is not hell. It's a place of deep, deep darkness. And you've read about the abyss before in Luke chapter 8 and verse 31, where Jesus encountered a demoniac, and there was, he was casting the demons out of him. And it is important to remember what was the name of those demonic hordes that were in that man? Legion. Remember that? For they answered him and says, we are many. And when you see this demonic manifestation here again, you see many. There's this, there's this sense of, of these demonic hordes just gathering together. And when those demons were being cast out of that man, they begged Jesus not to send them back to the abyss or back to the place of eternal darkness. The Greek word literally means a, a, a pit without a bottom. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of eternal darkness. It's a place that sometimes the Greeks would refer to as Tardis. It's a place 
not Gihana, it's not the lake of fire, it's not hell, but it's a place of eternal darkness where those spirits were confined. And something about the abyss so frightened those demonic spirits that they were begging Jesus not to be put there. It was a place of evil, of great darkness. In the book of Jude, in verse 6, Jude writes, I remind you the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belong. They, they rebelled against God. They followed Satan. And God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. So there's this place called the abyss. You know, I, again, I don't think it's a place in the earth. I think we've talked about if you take everything in Revelation literal, then you've got to take everything literal. You have to take and look at these things very carefully. There is a place somewhere in God's creation called the abyss. The way those early people would have understood it, they would have understood it as a place of darkness down in the earth. But in this place of the abyss where these spirits were fallen, Peter writes about it, says, God did not even spare the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell. The word there is Tardis, in gloomy pits of darkness, which they are being held until the day of judgment. It's not the lake of fire that we'll read about later in the book of Revelation. And of course, we know in our English that sometimes the word for the grave or Hades, we know the word for Tardis, we know the words for Gehenna or hell, all of those are referred to with one common word of hell, and it's caused some, some times of confusion where some people have picked and chose from the Scripture to say there's no such place as hell, and there is a place as hell. And the last time that you're going to see the abyss mentioned is when it's mentioned again in chapter 20 when the angel lays his hands upon the devil, the dragon, the serpent, and binds them for a thousand years in the abyss. We'll talk about millennial theology as we get to that later on. We talked about it for just a little while when we talked about the churches. But it's then when he lays hands upon them, that will be that place where all of those who follow the wicked one will be fallen and sent to as well. I think it's important to look at this passage and notice that this fallen star, this fallen angel, whom I believe to be Satan, he's given a key which tells you he's not sovereign. He's given a key which tells you he's not free to do as he wishes. He has to have permission. He's in this place. It's why Martin Luther often referred to the devil as God's devil. It's why that many writers have referred to the devil as being upon a chain based upon what Peter wrote about, that they're chained. And if you've ever seen a mean dog on a chain, you know you're safe unless you get too close to the chain. Unless you get to the, that place where there's enough slack in the chain where the dog can bite you or harm you or hurt you. It's what Luther meant when he says that the devil was God's devil, that God used the devil for his purposes. And you're going to see that in Revelation chapter 9. And it's a part of understanding what this great tribulation is all about. For what you're seeing here is the real character of Satan being unveiled. You're seeing the mask being ripped off of Satan. You're seeing the, 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 the unveiling of darkness. And you can put that up there. Satan's real character is unveiled. Because in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11, it says, Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon in the Greek, and Apollyon, the destroyer. The character of Satan and the character of all evil is destruction. 
It's the reason that Jesus says that the thief only comes to lie, to kill, to steal, to destroy. Jesus comes to give life. He comes to set free. He gives freely. And whenever you see the character of evil being unmasked, you're seeing what Satan wants to do all along. The great tribulation, and we talked about the three different types of tribulation last week, and I, we won't have time to go back through that this week, but the great tribulation is that time when all of darkness is unveiled upon this earth, and the true nature and the true character of Satan is revealed, and the true character of evil is revealed, and yet you read the sad ending of Revelation chapter 9, and people still refuse to repent. It's important that we understand that when this pit is unlocked, and when this dark horde comes out, and again, I believe that this is figurative language, but I believe that it's like a spirit of darkness that comes upon the face of the earth that is darker than any time we've ever known before. When you think of a dark time in history, you think about the dark ages. You think about the medieval ages and how even Christianity became infected with such superstitions and even, you know, thinking that bones of saints had power and how that people became very superstitious and it took the Reformation to to knock out all that superstition out of us. It took bloodshed as wars were fought and sometimes people will talk about those wars with the most foolish and of anybody I've ever heard because they're not recognizing the kind of darkness that had descended upon human beings and upon the church and Christianity as there was this admixture of evil and Christianity together in what was then the one universal church, the Roman Catholic Church, this, this power of evil that had come together and such darkness had happened and took place. There were many in that time who thought that this was the great tribulation, that we had entered that time. It's why even right up until the preaching of Charles Spurgeon, you would hear Spurgeon refer, and he's one of my heroes, but you would hear Spurgeon refer to the Pope as the Antichrist. You would hear even when I was growing up, some preachers refer to the Pope as Antichrist. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. But I do think that there is an Antichrist spirit that has always been at work in our world and where the preaching of the gospel has been diminished, where confidence in the Bible has been diminished, where the church has lost its saltiness or lost its ability to illuminate, then the presence of that darkness grows. But when God mercifully sends a when God mercifully sends renewal and people find confidence in the Word again and preachers find confidence in the power of the Word of God, preach from the pulpits and Christians find confidence in prayer, you find the powers of hell retreating because they understand that we know who we are and we know who evil is. But when the church is taken out of this place and the rapture takes place and the church is out of here, then suddenly there's going to be something very different that happens as God begins to unleash and unmask what evil really is. It doesn't mean that there still won't be people being saved because we've already seen how people will be saved and give their hearts to Christ. But there is something else that you need to see and hear, and that's the mention of all the locusts. Exodus talks about the locusts. Joel talks about the locusts. Locusts were used of God to bring judgment 
As a matter of fact, Joel wrote so much about the, the locusts that the early Pentecostal church was constantly referring to the book of Joel and to the plagues as, as not only the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as not only a restoration of the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to the church, but they were looking forward to the return of their Lord, and it's where we got our word imminent, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the, this once again fulfillment of the Holy Spirit coming, and they were looking for the imminent return, but they wanted to warn people of what was going to happen. Part of that came out of dispensational theology that started in the 1800s, but a part of that came out of a real passion and a real for lost people. The Bible says that the locusts came out of these smokes, the smoke, and they were given power to sting like scorpions, but they were told, now listen, this is important, they were told, don't hurt the grass, don't hurt anything green, don't hurt a single tree, only men and women. That's not what locusts do. Locusts eat grass. Locusts eat leaves. So, obviously, these locusts aren't the same locusts of Exodus and Joel. These locusts are demonic spirits coming to torment people. You might want to write that down to the side of your outline. These locusts are powers of hell that are coming, and the Bible says that they were ordered to torture but not to kill for five months. And I think it's important again to see how that the power of Satan was so limited that he was not free to do what he wanted to do for how long he wanted to do it, but he's given the power to torture and to kill. And unlike two recent celebrities, popular celebrities, people that, one of them that I've enjoyed watching on television, in different countries that he's traveled to where Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade decided life was no longer worth living. They took their lives. These people will want to die. But even the physicians that would like to assist them in suicide, death will flee from them because of this judgment that is coming upon the earth because of the evil that human beings embrace even when the real character of Satan is revealed. I grieve every time I read the story of a young man who dies in a crack house in Detroit. I grieve every time I read the story of another child being mowed down by uh, somebody who has a drug debt to settle with somebody else or a gang debt to settle. I grieve every time I read of a terrorist walking into a restaurant. I find myself grieving as I watch children ripped apart from their families and at the border with Mexico and the United States. And you can take that political if you want, but I grieve because there's just something not right about tearing families apart. Yes, our borders should be protected, and yes, I know there is evil, but what kind of day are we living in? I grieve when I see people knowingly go back to the vomit that has been destroying their lives. I grieve when two young men that I've led to Christ and to 
discipled at our church, one who was in middle management for Ford Motor Company. He and his wife gave their hearts to Christ right over there and met me at the altar and prayed. And I met with him for weeks and weeks, and they were growing in Christ. And then one day something happened to him, and he disappeared. And when we finally found him, he was dead in a crack house in Detroit. And I held his wife, and Becky held his wife while he cried. I grieved when I preached his funeral. I grieved when I preached another young man's funeral and held his mom and dad here. He gave his heart to Christ and was discipled here and doing so well. But something happens and he, he, he sneaks drugs into his mom and dad's house and overdoses and dies. I grieve when that happens. And sometimes we just go along in our lives as though everything is okay with us. Friends, there is a battle for the souls of men and women that are taking place around us every day. And if we think these days are evil, these days are nothing compared to the times of evil to come upon the face of this earth. For when the church is out of here, the salt and the light, and God unleashes the powers or lets loose the powers of hell to do what they've always wanted to do, It's why I took you through Genesis before we came here. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, that same evil descended upon their family by two boys worshiping God. And one not liking the fact that God accepted one's offering and rejected his. See, pride has a way of making us think we're right even when we're wrong. And that's why it's so important as we read this book to understand God is saying, I am going to give back to the church what is rightfully the church. There is a new heaven and a new earth that's coming, yes. But what you're seeing is the wrath of God being revealed against sin, but the mercy of God as lost people come to Christ. There's a second phase of this, and I have to just kind of keep moving with this there's so much more to say just in those first few verses but there's an east versus west battle that's about to happen this east west battle is an interesting battle because it's a global conflict in response to prayer you got to remember once again we're called back to the altar of incense the golden altar of incense i read that to you when we read through roman revelations chapter 9 just a moment ago What you're seeing is God's answer to the prayer of the saints, how long, how long? Now that you need to write out to the outside of your outline. What you're reading here is God's answer to prayer. I remember one time I was praying for revival in my hometown, Macon, Georgia. And I was praying just, man, just so fervently one night, God, shut down all the liquor stores. God shut down all the tobacco stores. God shut down Brown and Williamson, which every every cool cigarette in the world was made in Macon, Georgia, at the Brown and Williamson plant. Later that night, one of my deacons, older deacons, and I'm a young pastor, he said to me, boy, pastor, if God answers your prayer, Macon's going to be in a whole lot of trouble. He said, the taxes that are gone and the jobs that are gone, if God answers your prayer, sometimes we don't realize what we're praying for. Sometimes we don't realize what we're looking to God for. 
How many of you have heard of something called the syntax? Politicians love those things because they can tax those to high heaven and people like you and me are never going to complain. I don't care if cigarettes go to $20 a pack because I don't want to see people dying of lung cancer. I've been there and seen their faces removed, their noses removed, and held them while they die of lung cancer. You know, it's not that I believe that cigarette smoking is going to send you to hell, but it'll get you to heaven a whole lot faster. And so the point is, is that the politicians love that. What you're seeing is a conflict that God is going to allow to happen for the east versus west. We read about the Euphrates River because the Euphrates River, if you remember a few weeks ago, maybe three months ago now when we first started, we talked about the Parthenians and those magnificent riders who learned how to shoot backwards on their horses, bows and arrows, and how they were the terror of the Romans and how they had decimated two Roman legions. Well, they lived on the other side of the Euphrates rivers. They were famous for riding up the battles with armies in pursuit of them, chariots and horsemen in pursuit of them. And then once they got to the top, they would unleash their arrows. Their archers were known. They're still legendary. Well, anything in the Jewish mind or the Roman mind came east of the Euphrates River. The Germans and the Vandals were not Rome's problem at the time. It's what lay east of this. So as the early church read this in those seven churches we talked about, this would have struck a note of sobriety into the church, but it would have struck a note of fear into the people and the communities who heard this, this message that suddenly that the east and west, there's going to be this clash. Rome would have fear. But there will be many who are born again during this time. I just read you the passage who talked about those that were ordered to torture but not kill. They won't find a way for death will have gone into hiding. But the Bible tells us that these were only to touch those who lacked the seal of God on their foreheads. There are people that as they give their hearts to Christ, they are marked by the Lord. And again, we don't know that number 144,000. We said we can't take that. Literally, it's a fulfillment number. So when we get to Revelation 9 and 13, we have to ask ourselves, can we take 200 million literally? Let's look at that again. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking for the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. That's the incense altar. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great Euphrates River. And then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour, day, and month, and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on the earth. And I saw and I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. Now, let me tell you what prophetic revelation is saying. Prophetic revelation is saying there's going to come an army beyond anything that you can imagine from the east. Prophetic interpretation would say this army is going to be 200 million. Prophetic interpretation might disagree and say, this army is going to be a number that you just simply can't count. Prophetic interpretation would say, no, this army is not 200 million, nor is this army a a number beyond count. It would say, this army is just a symbolic 
of the fulfillment of evil coming upon the land. Those are three different schools of interpretation. I happen to believe that it's a number beyond fulfillment. If you want to disagree with that, that's okay. We can still be friends. You're wrong and I'm right. No, I'm teasing. (laughs) Prophetic speculation, though, would say these are tanks. I mean, these are... These are, these are um, uh, Chinese soldiers, and these are Indian soldiers coming. Because, as I told you last week, for the first time in history, we have, through the power of two nations, the ability to call up a standing army of 200 million people. That's true. And whenever you read a prophetic speculator that says, today we can raise up an army of 200 million people, that's true. What they don't tell you is what I want to tell you tonight. At the height of World War II, there were only 70 million troops that the entire world could muster for World War II. That was the Orient, Europe, and the United States, and the Soviet Union. Friends, to support an army of 200 million people, do you know how many folks that's going to take? Today's United States tank holds 500 gallons of tank fuel. I got these numbers yesterday. 500 gallons of tank fuel and gets a thrifty three gallons to the mile. The problem the United States Army has, according to a tank commander that I talked to yesterday, the problem that the Army has now is our tanks are so fast that the supply lines can't keep up with them. So the tanks literally outrun the fuel trucks. So the reason I believe that this is an army beyond anything you could imagine is because if we're not going to take the 144,000 literally, I don't think we can press the 200 million literally. But I don't believe it's just to be taken as something spiritual, as the fulfillment of evil. Because Revelation is very clear. There is going to be a great battle and a tremendous battle upon the earth. Let's continue reading. Revelation 9, verse 17 says, And in my vision I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them, and the riders wore armor that was fiery red, dark blue, and yellow. Now, that's symbolic talking again there, why I believe this is a hellish army. There are demonic spirits with this army. There are demonic manifestations of this army. Those are, the cover, those are the colors of fire and brimstone. The sulfuric colors and the, and the color of the fire. The horses had heads like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. And one third of all the people were killed by these three plagues, by the fire, smoke, and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. The power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. This demonically inspired army, I think, will be a magnification. And remember, I told you earlier to remember legion. We are many. When the pit is opened, there will be many. There will be a king, a ruler over them. His name is Satan, Apollyon, or Abaddon. This man that Jesus cast the demons out of in the book of Luke possessed supernatural strength. When they bound him with chains, he broke chains. It's the kind of stuff that our teenagers and college students like to watch and 
in hero movies when the hero is chained up and he strains and he pops the chains on his wrist and his arms. This man would do things to himself that we would put people in the hospital for, for harming themselves with. We know, and I've been in those parts of the world, I've seen people levitate without any wires, not in a theatrical thing, but just seen it happen where they literally come off the ground because of, it's why I've said signs and wonders don't impress. I've seen these things happen. There is a real power of evil and darkness in our world when people yield to that. And we in the Western world, we go, we're too educated for that. That doesn't happen. We've been blessed because of a strong presence of the Bible-preaching churches, Bible-preaching denominations that may not always agree on interpretation, but have agreed upon the core central doctrines of our faith. They've always agreed. But as the weakening of faith and the corruption grows more and more and the confidence diminishes, unless there's revival in churches and in pulpits, and the more the worship of the enemy, the more the fascination with foreign religions, the more the fascination with witchcraft and the occult and demonology, we will see those kinds of things begin to take place in America again. Because you have to remember that in our nation, upon this soil, and this is not a racial statement, and I'll dial down on that on just a little bit more, human sacrifice was practiced often right here. David Brunier, the great man of God, who was a missionary to the Indians, when they killed him, they cut his heart out because they believed eating his heart would give him part of their strength. It's no different than the countries I've worked in in Africa where a man will rape a young girl because she's a virgin, thinking that by having sex with her, according to the shamans in their tribe, he will be cured of AIDS. And what they do is just keep passing AIDS on alone. That's what superstition and darkness does. You go, well, you can explain all of that. Well, of course you can explain all of that. But part of what gets people fascinated in that It's a fascination with occultic power, and then those who gain that occultic power have tremendous sway and lead. When this church is taken out of here, during this time of the Great Tribulation, the darkness and the lies that will be be believed are going to be beyond anything that you and I can imagine. Because suddenly there is this sense that the world is being carried away with evil, fascinated with evil. So what does all this say to me tonight? This prophesied invasion awakens me from my complacency today. It awakens me to a greater sense of prayer than ever before. If those early Christians were praying, if those early Christians were seeking God and fasting, If those early Christians who were doctrinally pure, who were doing the right things, we went through those letters together. You read those letters with me. We've read every chapter standing on our feet together so far. You read those letters. Those churches who were testing the prophets, those churches who were some of them in danger of losing their candlestick, losing their place because they were doing the right things 
but they had a form. They were not in love with Jesus. Or maybe they were tolerating immorality in the church, though they had the right form, but they were doing it in the name of Jesus. If those churches, then how much more do you and I have to be concerned about the complacency that comes upon us when it seems that just about anything can come before Christ? You've been at Woodland long enough, and I've tried to be very careful in writing because you can't preach through Romans 8 and 9 without sounding a bit negative. But I have tried over the years to say to you, we don't judge your faith in God by how many times your taillights are pulling onto the parking lots of Woodland Church. I would rather you miss Wednesday night if Wednesday night's the only night you have to do ministry in the community. I would rather you miss Wednesday nights, even though this is my favorite service of the week, and I've said that for 20 years here. I would rather you miss Wednesday nights if this was the only night you have to be with your family. But it seems that more and more I hear from people, we don't have time for family devotions. We don't have time to pray together. We don't have time for the things that would disciple our children. We don't have time for a small group, the things that would disciple us. I'm sure that's not you because you're here on a Wednesday night. But I hear people making more and more excuses and then wondering why things aren't going any better with their families. Never forget what one man said. What we excuse in moderation, our children will excuse in excess. And it's very important for us to understand the faith that we put. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, let me get to that. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the Scripture says, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and then die from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. To warn us of what? To warn us of our complacency, I know I'm inserting that word, but that's what he's writing about, our complacency, who live at the end of the age. The church, the age of the church is at the end of the age. After this, God will wrap this thing up. After we finish, we'll see how he's going to bring it all together and the new heaven and the new earth and that holy city coming down from above. And I read this, it's easy for me to go, I don't go to pagan revelries. I don't go to worship idols. But if we read carefully what's being said, the point of the message is the response to repent and not the imagery. The point of the message is for you and I as believers to repent of our own materialism and our complacency. The point is to make us sober, to understand what's going to happen. For the recipients of this message, it was not Rome. The recipients of this message was the church. I, John, saw it. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. Don't get complacent. You don't want to be, to use a phrase that I used earlier, left behind. 
Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and they turned to God and they continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Listen to me. Don't read that looking back in time. Don't read that going, oh, that was people who were climbing up Aztec monuments and sacrificing human beings. Don't read that as as people who were at the altars of Baal. Don't read that as people who were divining from the livers of animals. And if maggots came out of the animal's liver, then they feared plagues coming upon them. But if the animal's liver was healthy, then they, they welcomed prosperity coming. Don't read that as people living in the ignorant superstitions. Read that as people at the end of a scientific and technologically advanced age who are materialistic and love the things that they've invented and created. And I find myself struggling with that because there are times I don't need it, but as soon as Apple comes out with a new product, I want it. I don't need it. I want it, right? Don't hold that up in front of my face and tempt me back there. Somebody went, I got a new one. You're who I'm preaching to tonight. I find myself struggling at times. I saw a new Mustang the other night. It was so pretty. It looks so good. I told Amy, I says, oh, if your mama would let me, I'd get rid of this one tonight, and I'd buy that one tomorrow. She says, Daddy, you need to be satisfied with what you've got and quit lusting. (laughs) She's your mama's child. (laughs) I said, well, it don't hurt to look. She says, it does you. (laughs) You see, we, I, I find myself in this world, there are times when I've got everything I need. One day, Christian Knischel came by the office and he said, Pastor, you want to go get something to eat? And I said, well, isn't there something to eat at your house? He goes, there's nothing to eat at my house. I said, Christian, there is no food in your house. There's nothing to eat. Well, there's food, but you got to cook it. (laughs) I mean, we, we find ourselves wrestling in this material world. Because we're bombarded with messages always. And what we worship is what we spend our lives working for and serving. What we worship is what we bow at. There's a couple in our neighborhood. They call us their pastors. I've married the children. I've buried their dead. But I'm not really their pastor. Speaking of Demonic influences. (laughs) That's okay, buddy. One Sunday, I was leaving for church, and he was on his knees. So I walked down to his house. We'll call him Paul. I said, Paul, you're on your knees on a Sunday morning. He goes, yeah, I got to get this crabgrass and these weeds out of my lawn. I says, So your house is your God's. 
He goes, don't you start. I said, you're on your knees. You're casting out crabgrass before your great house. He looks at me and he says, please, go away. I'm glad he loves me because he's a lot bigger than I am. But he got the message. You see, passionate followers of Christ, what we need to understand is this is being revealed to us. We don't need to fear evil. Even those who get saved during the Great Tribulation do not need to fear evil. Those who get saved during the Great Tribulation, they will be protected according to the vision that John saw. Those that need to fear are our lost friends. Because death will flee them. We have to pray for our lost friends. I referred to the early Pentecostals tonight because I think Pentecostals have even lost this. I was sitting with Dr. Tom Trask, who was the former general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. And he and I were talking, and he said to me, he said, Denny, I'm so worried that people have lost their passion to see lost people saved. He says, our churches are good about coming to the altar and praying, but they won't talk to anybody about Jesus. He said, help me pray about that. And so for almost 25 years, I have prayed with him about that. I don't care how much you speak in tongues. That doesn't impress me. I don't care how many sick people you pray for. That doesn't impress me. I don't care how many miracles you've seen. That doesn't impress me. Because the mark of a person that has been truly baptized in the Holy Spirit is that they care about the soul's of lost people for the baptism was given to us to be give us power to be witnesses for Christ can you say amen, amen. so pray for your lost friends and then two final things Becky if you come on up sweetheart when I read this I also see the collapse of the kingdom of darkness because east versus west Jesus himself said it a house divided against itself cannot stand even the demons in hell can't get along. <laughs> Satan can't get along with himself. And it just seems like all he does is destroy and they will begin to divide and collapse himself. You're reading about the ultimate fulfillment of what evil will do. So the next time you see a movie where adultery is glorified, the next time you see a movie where an affair solves a marriage problem, the next time you see a movie that mocks a businessman's trip and a fling he has with a Christmas holiday theme, or the next time you see a movie with a kind and gentle witch doing good things for people, or the next time you watch a horror movie and then you laugh later about how you jumped at the gore and the demonic spirit manifesting itself. Or the next time you sit down and you read your newspaper of 
terrorist who flew a plane into a building or blew a bomb up in a restaurant or went into a church and a suicide bomber blew themselves up or one Muslim blew up another Muslim's uh, mosque because they don't like the way they worship. The next time you see all that, understand that all of that evil is being unmasked and is a division against itself. Those who think they can do good with evil and those who think they can do bad with evil, they will all end up clashing because the author of that evil is not God. It's the one who's being restrained on a chain. It's the one that in that tribulation time that when he is unloosed from the pit, you will see evil for all it really is. So don't get caught up in this world's values. I told you how you could look at your soul Sunday morning. You know your soul by your virtues. You know your soul by what you value. You know your soul by how you make your decisions. You know your soul by what you live for and work for. You know your soul by what moves you emotionally or what deadens you. Know tonight what brings you to your knees in prayer. Know tonight what makes you work to buy a house. That's to have a family, to build a home. Know why you put food on the table. That's so you can have fellowship. Know why we come to church. It's not so we can stuff our heads with Bible knowledge. It's so that when we hit these altars in prayer, we walk out of this place full of the Holy Spirit. And when we go to the workplace or the marketplace or the store, people sense something about us. I prayed for you this week. I pray, God, as a result of our preaching and looking at Revelation, Don't let us be walking, talking books of speculation, but let people sense a love for Jesus, a passion for Jesus, and a hope of heaven to come. We want to see lost people born again. That's what this book is all about. Well, let's give him a hand of praise. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Jesus, We're going to just put all this in oil now until September gets here and we pick it up again. But if we were to stop here, God, we've had enough to let us know that you're coming soon. You're coming quickly. We've had enough just from the revelation of who you are in chapter (laughs) 1. to love you more than we've ever loved you before, to reverence you more than we've ever reverenced you before. And Jesus, we've learned from these seven churches what a church ought to be. I've learned what kind of pastor I want to be. And Lord, we've learned from the worship around heaven's throne that the center of the universe is a lamb that has been slain from the foundation of the earth. And it is this scroll with its seven seals are handed out. God, your end time plan is being revealed. And you've given us a look. So we join with those whose blood is already under the altar. And they cry out, how long, how long? We join with them tonight, Lord. And we just simply pray, Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But while we live and wait, help us to work and pray. Help us, as Spurgeon said, Lord, to keep a sword and a trowel close by. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray.
Would you bring your notes and just come and find a place and kneel in the altar for a few minutes tonight before you go home? And let's seek the Lord's face together in prayer. And I will come as you Nothing, there is no one who compares with you. I take pleasure in worshiping you, Lord. I will come and bow down at your feet Lord Jesus in your presence there's fullness of joy there is nothing there is no one who compares with you I take pleasure in worshiping, pleasure in worshiping, pleasure in worshiping you, Lord. Would you give him thanks tonight that he really is in control? giving thanks that when this time comes upon this planet that it will be in the fullness of God's time it will not be because men are destroying themselves it will not be because of an economic or of a climatic disaster but it will be a time where God unleashes and unmasks and reveals what evil is really like. His works are to be celebrated. His works are to be praised. We may not understand it all now, and it hurts, oh, it hurts to read these passages. When you read the prayers of those saints, they're praying, God, do something about the evil that has taken place. And don't feel bad that you're stunned, for the prophet Habakkuk was so stunned. And he said, God, how can you use a people more wicked than your own people to punish them? And then God shows him the results of what he will do with the Babylonians. God is just and God is holy. He is loving and he is good, but he is terrifying. It's why Lewis used a lion to represent our Savior. 
Would you pray that the Lord tonight will help you to see with eyes of faith, help you to see what is good and what is lovely, what is pure, what is holy and what is true. Would you pray tonight the Lord would help you to love all that is good and holy and pure and true. You don't have to study evil to know evil. When you know what's good and holy and true, you will hate evil when it manifests itself. I told you things tonight only to shake you up a little bit to say, yes, there is real powers of darkness out there. Hollywood may glamorize it. But it is worse than any cancer or any canker that you could imagine. And when something is not loving, when something is not kind or true, you know, you know, and you rebuke it in the name of Jesus, and you flee from evil, and you pursue righteousness. You pursue godliness. You're innocent concerning evil, and you're wise concerning good. That's why we're given this. Now tonight, pray for our president. Pray for the leaders of of the Western world. just south of our border where people lie on sunny beaches of such violence such crime and corruption and war in our cities As a nation, I fear at times we're coming apart ourselves. Pray for justice. Pray for wisdom. Pray for righteousness to prevail. And don't be afraid of truth. Now pray for the leaders of the Eastern world tonight. It would be so easy to become prejudiced. Prejudiced against the Chinese and the Indians. Prejudiced against the Koreans, the Japanese. Friends, that was not the purpose of this revelation given. 
The purpose was to add fuel to the fire of missions for the church, to spread the gospel. Because it would be very tempting to go, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if it's all coming to this? It matters. Because we don't know if this is going to happen today or tomorrow or 100 years from now or a 1,000 years from now. It matters that you and I are faithful to the call of God upon our lives. It matters for every lost friend and family member that crosses the line. And when that trumpet sounds, when the voice of Him calls our name, that we're ready to meet Him. And then finally tonight, pray that God will give you a boldness. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Hallelujah. So be bold, be strong, be a bold expressor of God's love. Now, Lord, I pray for our church family this summer. I pray, God, that you will bless us, bless every family as they vacation. Bless us as we worship together each Sunday when we travel. I pray that all of our families, Lord, will find a church to worship in to celebrate your love together. I pray when we're home, we'll all gather together and invite our friends and our family, Lord, to come and join us each Sunday. I pray, Jesus, for our pastoral staff as they minister and lead and guide. Lord, I pray that you're going to anoint them. Lord, I ask you that you're going to touch Rick and Mark, and you're going to touch Pastor Corey, and you're going to touch Pastor Casey Arnold and, and Pastor Dean Elliott as they come to preach for us, Lord. I just ask you in the name of Jesus for Keith and for Mike who are going to be speaking, for Tom, Lord, on Wednesday evenings. I pray in the name of Jesus that you're going to work through them and flow through them in the name of Jesus. I pray keep us from sickness, keep us from harm. Lord, I pray that you will prepare a way before us that when this summer is over, it will be our best summer ever. I pray your blessings in our going in and our coming out. For it's in Jesus' name I ask. And everybody agreed together and said, amen, amen, and amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you. 
Thanks for being here tonight.